0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton.
1: Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast series from Backstreet to Wall Street, where entrepreneurs from around the world use innovative business models to solve some of the world's most pressing business problems. Leaders in the impact investing movement, who are providing the capital to fuel the growth, drive these conversations. Your hosts are Mukul Pandya, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton, and Doreen Shinaz, Founder and CEO of Impact Investment Exchange, one of the pioneers in promoting impact investing in Asia. Globally, adolescent girls and young women face gender-based inequalities, exclusion, discrimination, and violence in accessing health care. In today's episode of From Backstreet to Wall Street, Mukul and Doreen look at why only half of the women in developing regions receive the recommended amount of health care they need, with guest Jagdeep Gambhir, co-founder and CEO of Karma Healthcare in India. Karma Healthcare is an impact enterprise providing affordable, high-quality medical services to underserved communities, especially women, in rural Rajasthan through mobile technology, ensuring healthier lives by earlier detection and treatment.
2: Uh, Jagdeep, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Mukul.
0: Jagdeep, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, before I sort of jump in and start with the questions, and thank you, Mukul, for the introduction, I just want to give the listeners a little bit more of the background so they get to appreciate what amazing work you're doing. Um, So a little bit of the background on the healthcare situation in India um there are about 800 million people in rural India who lack access to reliable and affordable healthcare um nearly 70% of India's doctors and other medical professionals are all focused in the cities in the big cities and there's an incredible of course that means a vacuum uh of healthcare in the in the rural area and it sounds like another statistic that blew me away was uh, 48% of the overnight trips Made by millions of Indians in the rural area um, are all for medical purposes. So these are, these are astounding numbers. And of course, we know that healthcare really wipes out, um, you know, a lot of times the family savings and income. So, giving that setting, um, David, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of background in terms of, uh, you know, what Karma Healthcare is doing and how are you connecting the back street to Wall Street?
3: Mm-hmm. Thank you uh, so much for the introduction. And as you rightly pointed out, um, you know, given the extreme shortage and the extreme disparities in the access to healthcare, uh, you know, and in in India, especially a key problem is the shortage of doctors, um, you know, and uh, a lot of Indian healthcare system is based on availability of doctors. What Karma Healthcare does is that we believe that with the advent of technology, as well as with the penetration of internet, uh, which is coming through. Uh, you know, it you know it opens uh, you know two key uh, you know uh, streams uh, or two key uh, you know basic parameters that one could look at uh, you know to to kind of disrupt the healthcare system. One is that you know digital connectivity, so you can now connect patients to doctors, uh, you know, uh, and they might they not they do not need to be necessarily in the same physical location. So that is one. So uh, you know you can connect a patient sitting from sitting in a rural village in Rajasthan where we operate to a doctor sitting in Delhi right the second key uh, you know thing uh, that you know the penetration of internet does is that you have now the ability to actually monitor and evaluate a lot of patient data right so we are able to now capture a lot of data of rural patients right and then use that to improve the quality of care and the impact that happens so in a nutshell what karma does is that uh, you know we follow an assisted telemedicine model So, we connect patients in rural areas uh, to doctors in the city. Uh, We have e doctor clinics. So, e doctor is the brand. We have e doctor clinics that we operate in a village. Each clinic is serving a population of about 20 to 25,000 patients. There is a nurse, which is, uh, you know, preferably a female nurse, uh, which is from the local community. She's a trained nurse, and she is present in the village, which acts as the, you know, the physical conduit uh, between the patient and the doctor. So a patient so, comes Jack, into let the me, clinic. Let
0: me just sort of, Jack, let me just inter- interrupt, um, because... Um and it helps our listeners understand, um, obviously, the wonderful mm-hmm. work that you're doing. Um, so this is really what would be known as also a hub, of, hub and spoke model, mm-hmm. right? So you have these mm-hmm. hubs, uh, these are the clinics where the patients mm-hmm. come, and then you mm-hmm. have a nurse there, and the nurse sort of does mm-hmm. the, the first look, and then the nurse basically connects the patient uh, to the doctor's, Um, who is Mm -hmm. sitting in an urban area. Is that correct?
3: Yes, Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. Okay. So, um, and how is this, um, you know, in terms of of women? You know, because, again, uh, it'll be good before, you know, um, my question is, of course, you know, how does this impact the women more? But before answering that, um, again, just for our listeners, it'll be good for them to understand what is the setup in Rajasthan, you know, and because, of course, Anyone who even knows India uh, or knows of Rajasthan, the first thing you think about is the beautiful palaces. Um, but, of course, that's, mm-hmm. just, uh, that's the tourist side. Tell us a little bit about the culture in Rajasthan and what it means for women in terms of accessing health care, mm-hmm. and what are you doing about it?
3: Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, uh, during the data that you mentioned, about, you know, about 50% of women in Rajasthan uh, would be anemic, um, right? So uh, the state of women, um, you know, especially in the case of healthcare in Rajasthan, uh, you know, is improving, but, uh, you know, there is much that still needs to be desired. One of the key attributes of a place like Rajasthan is that, you know, Rajasthan is the largest state in the country in terms of area, uh, and hence it is very, very scattered as well. So one of the key challenges that we get is the population density in a place like Rajasthan will be very very different from you know many of the other states in the country because it is very large and hence you know uh, going from one village to another you know you, you will find vast expanses of empty land. Right? So that, um, you know, in terms of healthcare, that has a very, very significant impact on women and more impact on women than, uh, than to men because, you know, because the distances are large and women have a dependence on, you know, the male members of the family to travel. So they are, the you know, the, their access, the physical access to health care is, is limited. So, you know, while the men could still go to the city to seek health care, it would take, uh, you know, uh, it, the probability of, the, of a woman going there is, is much lower, and hence, by the time they go to a doctor, their diseases or the condition that they have actually has increased. Right. So the the, the bottom line is that the access to healthcare problem, given the distance as well as the financial dependence of women on their male male uh, you know male members in the family, does impact their health status a lot.
0: Right. Right. And and can you sort of, um, in terms of sort of the success of karma, how you are changing this equation, right? Because what you said is so true. And I think, you know, in terms of you know women not um, getting access to health care because they're dependent on the men to take them. But also, mm-hmm. I think what we see in the Asian context, in South Asian context, um, women always think of themselves as, you know, sort of lesser than the men. So they won't even Think of you know their ailments, right um mm-hmm. so how is mm-hmm. karma changing the way women in the rural area you know i mean how they're getting the access to health care? Do you see more women mm-hmm. getting it? Do you have a any story that you can share with us that the listeners can mm-hmm. get a feel of it? Mm-hmm.
3: Sure, sure. Thanks. So in terms of access, right, um, you know, the same quality of healthcare or the same qualification of a doctor, which was otherwise available hundreds of kilometers away, is now present in the same village that the women live or, you know, within the same vicinity that the women live, right? So that dramatically improves the access to health care and the affordability of, of health care, right? So they don't have to rely on their male members in many cases to actually come to a karma clinic, right? So that has suddenly impacted, right? B, I think the key element uh, for what we're doing is that we want to tackle the underlying determinants of health. So, you know, what happens is that malnutrition and anemia right uh, as i mentioned 51% of women have malnutrition and anemia uh, you know when a woman comes to a clinic you can do a symptomatic treatment but if you do not intervene on the underlying health determinants right then the the patient or the the woman is going to come back to the clinic again and again so we have a lot of focus on preventive as well as early stage detection of various underlying causes especially malnutrition in women that are malnutrition and anemia that we take care of, right? And I'll I'll give you one example, right? About two years ago, uh, you know, we had a patient, uh, you know, we have a clinic in a place called Jadol, which is about 70 kilometers from our corporate headquarters. And, uh, you know, we had a patient coming into our clinic, and she was suffering or she was going to unqualified providers, um, you know, untrained and unqualified providers for the last seven months. And we had recently opened a clinic, so, you know, she came to our clinic. She's, she's 22 years old, um, you know, and mother of two. Mm -hmm. The first thing we did was to do an hemoglobin test. So we have a point-of-care detection device that could detect the hemoglobin level of, of a patient, right? And you would be surprised and I was very surprised that the hemoglobin test for that patient came 2.1, 2.1, wherein in the, the average or the normal hemoglobin level, you know, in women would be about 9 to 10, right? And 2.1 is, oh, okay. is you know, essentially incompatible know. with life. So, you know, one wonders how right. she's even alive. Right, uh, and you know, so we did that. We, we did that test, and you know, it is you know, it cost less than a dollar uh, for 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 uh, for it to be done in our clinic, and you know, there was nothing we could do online, and then we had to uh, immediately tra- uh, send the patient to a tertiary care hospital in the city, and then she got a blood transfusion done. Right, and uh, we also, uh, you know, some of our staff actually donated blood to that patient, right? And she's 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 perfectly all right, um, you know. And uh, in terms of the story, right, uh, the husband of the women denied to give blood to uh, to this person. Right. So so that's when our staff had to do it. Right. And it does, you know, speak volumes about, you know, the status, you know, and, you know, how the healthcare of women is perceived, you know, in the areas. But, you know, now she's OK. You know, she's a regular customer, you know, to our clinics and, you know, her children also come and, you know, you know, whenever I go to the clinic, we meet her as well. Right. But, you know, just looking at the underlying problem, you know, does, you know, have a tremendous impact on the health of women.
0: Of course, and not only to that woman, but also, obviously, the children and the next generation, because um, the women, when when they are in this physical condition, and if they're getting pregnant, which they do, um, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just in the process, you're also not, you know, she probably won't make it uh, through the pregnancy, but also the the children will be, you know, highly, um, you know, impacted by it. Now, um, you know, i read some um, statistics, uh, once again, in, in your material where um basically you know the typical cost um of a, of a you know sort of a healthcare issue to be taken care of, where someone in Rajasthan say, has to travel a long ways off, um, the typical doctor and to see a doctor and all that would cost about say two thousand rupees, which is about thirty dollars um and you can do the same thing uh, for one hundred and fifty rupees, which is about two dollars and thirty cents. I mean this is incredible. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, one-fifteenth the cost. Uh, walk us through a little bit in terms of, um, uh, you know, when a patient comes and, you know, your nurse sees the patient, how does the process work? Of course, the technology brings the price down um, and the detection, all of that, but um, how how does the process work that allows for a doctor sitting in, say, Delhi to be able to see this this woman and which... The woman is getting the same treatment, basically.
3: Mm -hmm. Correct. So, uh, you know, um, when a patient walks into a clinic, um, you know, there is a nurse. So before she even gets connected to a doctor, the nurse would actually first record the history of the patient, right? So uh, what is the blood pressure? What is the weight? uh, You know, what are the hemoglobin levels? And, you know, uh, she would kind of run a battery of, uh, you know, point-of-care detection tests, right, at the clinic, then, uh, you know, that's because that's, the, you know, we have a, a semi-artificial intelligence or a semi-AI feature in which before the patient, as soon as the nurse finishes and records the patient history, a clinical decision support system, would kind of get activated and would kind of run a scan uh, on um, you know on the the vital parameters that have been put. In many cases, we would actually deny or we would actually stop treating the patient because we believe uh, you know if there is a very very complex and serious ailment that cannot be treated over an online system, we immediately start uh, you know our referral system. Like in this case, we had done in the previous case, right? So that kind of comes in. Right. Um, in case that we believe that the the the, the 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 condition of the patient could be treated by a doctor online, uh, then she gets connected to a doctor. There is a 42 inch uh, you know LED TV uh, you know in the screen, and you will have a very immersive experience when the doctor and the patient will talk real time. If there is a language barrier, there is a nurse in the clinic. She can facilitate uh, you know uh, you know any language gaps uh, that have. Then the doctor would prescribe the medicine, uh, and uh, you know uh, the the prescription or digital prescription is is created, uh, you know, and given to the patient, and then they can go to a nearby pharmacy, and and get treated. So that's essentially the process. The entire linchpin of this is the technology system that Karma has, which. Does allow it is um, you know does allow you know us to be able to support or assist a doctor to be able to do uh, you know a better clinical outcome or to be able to have a better clinical decision on the patient uh, that you know he or she is seeing.
0: Right, um, Jagdeep, this is this is very very interesting, and I want to hear more about sort of the data side. But um, for our listeners, um, you're all listening to the show from Back Street to Wall Street. Um, It's a show that explores how impact investing is linking the remote parts of the world to the global financial markets. And today's episode is Investing in Women's Health. And our guest is Dr. Jaideep Kambir from Karma Health. And uh, we are hearing about the wonderful work that Karma is doing in remote parts of Rajasthan. So, Jaideep, as we're discussing, in terms of the data, you know, so this is, of course, something now everyone gets very excited when they hear the word data, right, and big data and how are we using big data. Uh, how are you using it? It sounds like you have sort of now uh, talked about it here and there. So, you know, tell our listeners in terms of how big data and artificial intelligence is playing a role in the service that you're providing because it seems like you're using it really very effectively and doing incredible social good with it. So give us a taste of that. mm
3: mm-hmm okay in terms of uh, you know i'll actually give you uh, this example with women's health right so or um, you know children's health right so if you look at um, you know the the main causes or the main diseases for uh, for you know maternal mortality or infant mortality in some cases you know it would be diarrhea pneumonia right in, in case of um, you know infant mortality and when malaria, so when a patient walks into our clinic, uh, and you know we have diagnosed the patient with uh, a diarrhea, uh, you know there are WHO protocols for malaria or diarrhea or for pneumonia treatment that has been laid out, and you know that are available, um, you know for for public use we ensure that through the clinical decision support system that once a doctor treats a patient and prescribes medicines to the patient the prescription that is given or generated uh, you know um, on, using the online system um, you know has to comply or has to be similar or has to be very close to the actual you know, uh, appropriate uh, you know treatment for for that ailment, right? So, if there is a consultation between happening between a patient and a doctor, right? Uh, the the computer system would actually look at what are what what should be the uh, what should be the correct treatment for a patient suffering from pneumonia, and would actually in many cases support the doctor to go to the correct treatment or, or to the appropriate treatment. Yes, it is healthcare, so you know you will not have a hundred percent you know or not all prescriptions. Will be 100% matching, but the idea is to reduce the you know the variance uh, and hence improve significantly improve the quality of appropriate treatment uh, that is going on. So that I think uh, you know is critical. We because we have a patient data, we also have an ability to in many cases predict the underlying um, you know problems um, you know or future problems for the patient. So if we know that a patient is repeating and she's suffering from anemia. Right. Uh, we would actually, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, we do run or we do have, you know, enhanced counseling to be able to make sure that the malnutrition is first treated. Right. Uh, along with, right. you know, the, the under uh, with the, the treatment she has.
2: Yeah. So, Jagdeep, uh, right. a question I have is uh, uh, telemedicine has been around for a while and, and I'm very impressed with the model that you have developed. But from what I have read, one of the biggest challenges in telemedicine has been recruiting the doctors in the urban centers uh, who would be available on call to treat the the, the patients uh, who are you know in the remote areas. Uh, can you tell a little mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about uh, how you dealt with this challenge and what are some of the other challenges you faced and how you overcame them in building your model?
3: Mm-hmm. So uh, well, you know it's a great question, and you know we we have had uh, you know this, this issue as well right i think uh, one of our firm beliefs of the organization is that uh, you know uh, you know uh, we believe that the doctor should be compensated appropriately when he's seeing a patient online versus when he's seeing a patient offline, right? So we do not go to a doctor and say that because it is an online consultation, you should be charging us a lower fee, right? Um, Because, you know, that just dilutes the purpose of equity, right? I mean, it might be, you know, a rural patient, but he deserves the same amount of time and attention. So, you know, that is the basic uh, that we would look at. The model that works is that, A, in many cases, we are tying up with hospitals, right? So, uh, you know, we do... uh, you know, when we open a hub-and-spoke model, the idea is that if you open 10 clinics around a district, we would go to the nearby hospital or one hospital, which is anyway seeing patients, right, but at a much delayed, um, you know, duration. And hence, there are their same patients, right? So, A, these doctors uh, do not have, uh, you know, would see the patients, but, you know, do, when there is a secondary and tertiary care, uh, you know, services which are required, the patients would go in. And hence, there is an interest, um, you know, for the doctors to to see that, right? Um yeah so essentially you know that is where uh, you know we kind of look at how the model is so it's a hub and spoke right and the hub is essentially the the hospital within the city uh, right where in these clinics or you know around which these clinics are located
2: and how many hubs uh, 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 do you have in your in your network
3: yeah so we are have- three hospitals that we have a tie-up with uh, so far. Uh, so these are hospitals in the cities, and they have uh, doctors. Right. Okay. That is one. The other way we look at it is we follow a variable doctor model. So you know because uh, you know it is digital and you know if the doctor knows a local language, he could essentially be sitting anywhere, right? So we believe that there is still some access capacity of doctors on the private side. They might not be in a hospital. They might be They might be you know in in, in you know in, in an urban area and they would then come in and and you know consult patients and they can do it while sitting. At at their clinic so they can see their offline patients as well, and then they would see online patients as well. The underlying assumption is that we believe that, you know, given the extreme amount or given the high amount of value uh, that a patient saves in terms of travel and distance, you know, the patient in, in some points or a doctor should be agnostic to seeing a patient offline versus online.
2: Are you also trying to bring some of the pharma companies into your network? Because once you have diagnosed a condition, like as you said, anemia, you know, clearly mm-hmm. there may be uh, you know, uh, some solutions that require better nutrition or in some cases medication. I was absolutely shocked to mm-hmm. hear the case of the, the lady who had a hemoglobin count of two. That's astounding that you were able to save her life. Uh, so how, how yeah. do you deal with... Yeah. Uh, ph- are you trying to bring pharma companies into your network as well?
3: Yeah, so um, you know we have an arm's length relationship with the pharma companies, right? So we do provide. Uh, we have a you know uh, a list of um, you know pharma companies that we would. So when we have a clinic and there's a partner pharmacy, you know we do talk to the partner pharmacies to to make sure that there is a bare minimum quality and standards of the drugs which are available. But we do not tie up with only a single pharmacy or a single pharma company because it leads to conflict of interest interest in ethical issues, right? So, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we would not, um, you know, so the idea is that we would choose from any of the 15, you know, good pharma quality, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, companies that are available.
2: That's a great point about the conflict of interest. Thank you for being mindful about that.
0: So, Jagdeep, what's sort of the, what's your long-term vision for Karma? Because obviously, you know, it's fantastic how you have grown the organization over the last few years. I mean, so where do you see all this leading to? Mm-hmm.
3: So I think you know our our belief is that uh, you know this um, you know our digital model uh, you know which is backed uh, you know largely on data right uh, you know would would end up disrupting and making the healthcare more accessible affordable. And inclusive. Right. And uh, so our vision is to, you know, uh, to look at, uh, you know, creating these hub and spokes models, right, wherein we tie up with local partners, right, and local hospitals and then give, uh, you know, some of the clinics that we'll open will be our own, but many of the clinics that we'll open at scale will be through a franchise model, Right. Uh, And, uh, you know, so that is the way we look at it. What we want to do is to create a technology and an operations excellence and kind of, uh, you know, create an operating model for, you know, assisted telemedicine model uh, that would work. But we do not envision ourselves to be opening all these clinics, right? Uh, the idea is to kind of, you know, create a technology base and an operational framework, right, and then and create a business model and then franchise this, uh, you know, uh, for large-scale impact.
0: Right, and which I think is extremely, extremely smart because um, we do see, you know, with a lot of the impact enterprises, the reality is what you have is so localized that the only way you can grow is by taking that model and localizing it for some other space. So the franchise model yeah. works really, really well with that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm and very healthcare, very actually, is the reason is much that.
3: more localized, right? Healthcare is a lot about patient faith and knowing the provider, right? So, if we become an online digital platform and if you have no physical presence, right? people will not believe and have faith in the health system. So, you know, if this is essentially the only way, you will be able to scale.
0: Right. Now, that's extremely smart. And I think... Um, that also says why you know you did this uh, recent financing round um, and you worked with IX on this. So what was I mean? Did the investor appreciate all of these? I mean, what was your experience you know with the whole capital raising process?
3: Yeah, I think so. Uh, um, it was uh, you know the uh, you know as with uh, you know any um, you know fundraising time fundraising process, you know, I think, you know, you obviously have to talk to multiple people, but, you know, with the support of IX and our existing, you know, and the new investors, we have been able to raise this round, you know, given the scale of the problem, you know, and given the magnitude of the problem that we are trying to solve and given how real the problem is, you know, we do not have a problem in explaining, you know, we are not solving a niche problem, right? I mean, this is a very, very large problem to solve, so, you know, that is is not a, you know or not in challenge. You know, one key challenge we had to kind of, you know, convince, uh, you know, some of the investors would be in terms of infrastructure. So, you know, people have You know, uh, in in many cases, you know, uh, an opinion about rural India that, okay, this is a digital (laughs) model, but will you find Internet in those areas, right? But, uh, you know, given the penetration of Internet, you know, uh, there are many places where we could not open a clinic three years ago, but we can now open because the Internet penetration has reached. So, you know, so that was one key element that we had to convince, um, you know, some of the investors.
2: Yeah. Do, do you think you may stay on in Rajasthan? Do you have plans to expand beyond that?
3: Uh, yeah. So we have now actually expanded in Haryana, um, which is the nearby state, and in Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh. So we have, uh, you know, actually expanded, as we speak, uh, you know, within four states in, in the country.
0: Wonderful. And I think, at least on my side, um, you know, I guess uh, the last question really is, I guess, more of a bigger picture, which is, um, you know, there are a lot of discussions about, of course, the Sustainable Development Goals. And one of them, of course, SDG 3 is about good health and well-being. Uh, So sort of ending an optimistic note, I mean, do you think it is possible for us to achieve this? I mean, you know, are there more karma health, or can we be franchising karma health? I mean how do we achieve this this goal for the for the planet
3: yeah absolutely i mean. You know, for the last 25 years, if you look at the the improvement in numbers, I think, you know, it is all, uh, you know, I mean, uh, there is every reason to be optimistic optimistic on. I think what technology models, models like ours, you know, present is to be able to accelerate the growth of change, right? I think, um, you know, uh, if we follow more traditional, uh, you know, uh, models of outreach as well as models of healthcare, we would still be able to, you know, go to that change. But I think what excites me most is that the rate of change using a technology-enabled model will be much, much faster. Right. Um,
0: Mukul, anything else for Jagdeep
3: Uh,
2: after that wonderful conversation? uh, uh, No, I think this has been a great conversation and I just wanted to thank both of you for uh, uh, speaking with uh, Knowledge at Wharton for this podcast. Uh, Thanks, Doreen, and thanks, Jagdeep. uh, Wishing both of you the very best. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jagdeep. Thank you, Mukul.
1: As you've just heard, only half the women in the developing regions receive the recommended amount of health care they need. Globally, adolescent girls and young women face gender-based inequalities, exclusion, discrimination, and violence in accessing health care. Every two minutes, a woman dies during pregnancy and childbirth. That's more than 800 women a day. Most of these deaths are preventable when women have access to quality maternal health care before, during, and after childbirth. Merck for Mothers is working to change that situation. Dr. Marianne Etibet, leader and executive director of Merck for Mothers, speaks with Mukul and Doreen about this initiative by Merck, also known as MSD for Mothers Outside the U.S. and Canada, and how it leverages the private sector's expertise to achieve solutions to maternal mortality, how it's empowering women, equipping health providers, and strengthening health systems around the world.
2: Marianne, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast.
0: Thank you, Michael. We're very excited to find out all the wonderful work that uh, Mark from Mothers is doing. So let's sort of jump in. And before we talk about uh, this wonderful organization that you're running, uh, we always like to start with a personal story. So, Marianne, tell us about you. You know, what... Kind of brought you through this journey, and frankly, in connecting the back street to Wall Street, which you're doing so effectively
4: no, thank you so much for that question, Doreen. Um, I was born and raised in Lagos, Nigeria, and from a very early age, it was obvious to me that unless uh, girls and women had access to health care uh, and to education uh, their you know their ability uh, to participate fully uh, in communities and in the economy uh, was severely curtailed. And so, even from a young age, I grew up very interested in figuring out how I could contribute uh, to improving uh, access to health care uh, for girls and women. Uh, and that led me, you know to a career uh, as a physician. Uh, but I complemented that uh, with work uh, as a researcher in academia, uh, as an implementer uh, hope, uh, trying to improve uh, quality of care at the front lines, uh, and now uh, as an advocate um, and funder uh, of innovative programs uh, to improve access uh, to care uh, for girls and women around the
0: world. That, that's fantastic. So so this incredible journey that you've taken from Nigeria being in, in, in a physician and uh, going into research, academia, and now yeah. advocacy, uh, through all of this, I mean, what has been sort of one of the key takeaways to be able to uh, help more women and help more mothers that mm-hmm. you are bringing on to Merck uh, for Mothers? Mm-hmm.
4: So, Doreen, you know, one of the things... Uh, that I've realized, and being the lead of Merc for Mothers has uh, reinforced that belief, uh, is when a family loses its mother, uh, the repercussions are enormous. Uh, it's not just uh, that death uh, in and of itself, uh, which, as Mukul mentioned, is happening far too often, uh, 800 deaths every day, Uh, But when a mother dies, uh, her infants are less likely to survive, Uh, her other children are less likely to complete their education or live out their uh, expected uh, life expectancy, um, and the community suffers. Uh, And so as, you know, as I've joined Merck for Mothers and, and as I've seen the impact Uh, of the work that we're doing, uh, the thing that has really uh, stayed with me is when we are able to actually listen uh, to moms um, and uh, respond uh, to the things that they are telling us around what it is that they need, uh, provide them with the information uh, to make the right choices, but also the tools uh, to be able to uh, actually uh, implement uh, those choices so have real choices, uh, that's what made a difference. Uh, it's happening here right. in the United States, uh, but also, you know, in the back streets uh, of uh, um, uh, of India, uh, of Kenya, uh, of Nigeria.
0: Right. And I think that is that you, you really touched on a very important thing, which Mark for Mothers is doing, which is focusing on the mother. I and mean, in improving the health and well-being of the mothers, frankly, before, during, and after pregnancy. And it is it is really that whole continuum. And, and obviously you are doing that work. So let's talk about that work a little bit. So it's a, it's a 10-year program um, yeah. and half a billion dollars, which is a lot of money, yeah. which started in 2011. So tell us a little bit more about that. What was the inspiration, um, you know, at that time of, the CEO at Merck, you know, who I'm, I'm assuming was behind this, mm-hmm. and you know, what did Merck want to achieve with that, and, and where are you today in terms of what you have done? Thank you. So, so
4: Merck for Mothers really does build on a 125-year-old legacy uh, of Merck's mm-hmm. uh, commitment uh, to solving global health challenges, whether they be the Ebola crisis, uh, cervical cancer. HIV, AIDS, uh, or river blindness uh, through our Mexican donation program. And so when we looked at uh, back in 2011, before 2011, what one of the most pressing uh, health challenges were, it was really this issue of maternal mortality, uh, which the global community had not been able to solve. Uh, And we felt that by bringing not just funding, and as you mentioned, half a billion dollars, uh, $500 million is a huge commitment, which our CEO, Ken Frazier, made at that time. Um, uh, It wasn't just about bringing financial resources to bear. It was about bringing the expertise um, and Mm -hmm. uh, different uh, approaches uh, of the private sector to the issue. Uh, one of the things that we've realized through this work is up to forty percent of women in lower middle income countries get critical family planning and maternity health care services from local private providers, from local private sector. Mm-hmm. This uh, you know this segment uh, of the um, uh, service uh, provision had, you know all but been ignored. Uh, by traditional uh, development efforts uh, to improve quality of care. And uh, women across all uh, uh, strata of the economic pyramid were receiving care from local private providers. And often this uh, sector was a very complex, diverse sector uh, with um, not much information on the quality of services uh, provided there. And so we. So, so
0: Marianne, where would start? Interrupt just yes. to get our give our listeners um, some perspective. So, um, where did the public sector fall into all this um, when Mark started looking at the space and uh, looking, seeing, sort of what the ecosystem was? So, so that you're talking about the private sector and the healthcare that services that they were providing. Where was the public sector in most of these low-income countries? So the the, the, the
4: public sector, you know, the public sector is there. Uh, In many of these Mm -hmm. low- and middle-income countries, it is uh, providing services uh, to a large segment of the population, Uh, but often Mm -hmm. uh, because of lack of financing, uh, that infrastructure Mm -hmm. is crumbling. Uh, The quality of uh, care delivery uh, is poor, Um, that um, uh, staffing, uh, you know, is, is also... Uh, you know, uh, very scarce. And so one of the things uh, that we recognize is that we really had to approach this from a total market perspective. It wasn't about Mm -hmm. public sector versus private sector, but thinking about the total market as a whole. Because women are moving from, you know, public sector to private sector, lots of studies that show, you know, women may be getting their prenatal care, uh, you know, from one set of providers, but then give birth, uh, you know, in the other sector. We know that doctors uh, are also have both private and public practices, but what we found was that data, you know, was not following patients uh, across the sectors, and neither was the financing uh, so there is a huge uh, opportunity to kind of rationalize uh, how resources were allocated uh, when you look at the total market, as opposed to bifurcating and creating, you know, unnecessary barriers uh, between the public and private sector.
0: Right, and I'm sure each country then again had its own unique set of issues as well uh, when you were, um, you know, looking for market entry. So. I'm just curious. So uh, you work in over 30 countries, and mm-hmm. uh, when you you know, you, and you started this program now, what it's about eight years old. Mm-hmm. So what I mean, w- so looking at two countries, um, say India and Senegal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the two countries I see that you obviously did lot in lot of countries, but mm-hmm. those are two that jumped out at me. Um, what were I mean, how did Merck for Mothers even think about doing market entry? And making mothers sort of front and center with the services and the, you know, and and sort of the approach that you wanted to bring. Can you just share some of those thoughts with us? Sure, of course,
4: Doreen. So when we look at our mandate, uh, which is to end preventable maternal deaths, we know that India uh, is actually uh, one of the top two countries uh, contributing to the global maternal uh, mortality burden. Um, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. um, many women in India are receiving uh, maternity care services from the private sector. Uh, and I'll share with you one specific example uh, of how Merck for Mothers uh, is approaching uh, this issue in India. Um, you mentioned mm-hmm. how, how do we work. We really work uh, through partnerships. Uh, we, okay. uh, you know, our, our goal uh, is to really think outside the box. Uh, in terms of the different types of stakeholders we can bring to the table uh, around a shared vision. And so one of these innovative partnerships uh, that we were uh, kind of uh, instrumental uh, in facilitating uh, was a partnership uh, to develop uh, the world's first uh, health development impact bond, uh, the Mm UKRISH bond. Uh, UKRISH is uh, Mm -hmm. Hindi for excellence. And it is a bond, a uh, developmental uh, impact bond, uh, that uh, we are an outcome funder for. Um, and what that bond does is provide capital uh, to organizations uh, that will work with over 400 private health facilities in Rajasthan uh, to allow them or help them or improve their capacity to meet New government quality standards, uh, as well mm-hmm. as uh, sustain those standards over the long term. Uh, through this partnership, uh, and UBS Optimus Foundation uh, is the, um, is the uh, organization that's providing the capital uh, for this bond, uh, Population Services International and HLS PPT uh, are the uh, technical capacity building uh, implementers on ground. Uh, Ourselves, uh, Merck for Mothers, and USAID uh, are the outcome funders. Uh, So, through this Development Impact Bond, uh, we um, aim to reach up to 600,000 pregnant women uh, with improved care Mm -hmm. during delivery, uh, and that, uh, we estimate, will have the potential to save up to 10,000 lives, uh, both mothers uh, and their babies, uh, over a a five-year period. Um, the government right. of Rajasthan uh, is, is also uh, actively involved. Uh, they're playing an oversight role uh, with the view to becoming uh, an outcome payer uh, if uh, we're able to uh, prove that uh, this, uh, this methodology uh, using DIBs uh, actually uh, will, uh, you know, uh, will uh, hold on its promise uh, to improve quality of care and right. save
0: lives. So, Marianne, um, just, let's just go a little deeper because, you know, um, at IX, we actually structure bonds, right? So, it's, yes. and so for us, <laughs> you know, we have this uh, women's livelihood bond. We are now doing a whole series of, of bonds uh, in the U.S. Now, interestingly, um, there is always this tension, right? So when you're creating these bonds because you want to, of course, sell it in the public market, which we do, um, with this bond... How did that process work? Did you really actually bring in the private sector capital? I mean, did the private sector get excited about it? Did it actually catalyze the private sector? So, yeah. you know, did yeah. all <laughs> no, of those you, capital... You really,
4: <laughs> yeah, you, you asked a great question because, I mean, one of the things that uh, our experience uh, of um, uh, being, uh, you know, at the forefront of developing this uh, impact bond is that, uh uh, and one of our goals uh, was to crowd in private capital uh, for uh, these uh, development goals. You know, as as you know, uh, there's about a $33 billion gap uh, if the world exactly. is to achieve uh, the SDG targets uh, for maternal and child health. Uh, national budgets, health budgets are flatlining. Uh, overseas development assistance is going down. So. Really, um, the the private sector or, or private capital, we hope uh, will step up to the plate uh, and help us close that gap. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, you know our experience has been it really is uh, hard, and there are a lot of uh, high transaction costs in bringing uh, those private capital markets uh, you know into the development space. Uh, in this case, um, UBS Optimus Foundation, Uh, was that vehicle uh, for bringing in uh, private capital uh, into this partnership and into the development impact bond.
2: So, uh, Marianne, I I wonder, uh, as you seek to attract private capital to address these huge global issues, uh, what are some of the barriers that you face in attracting private capital and how have you dealt with them?
4: Uh, Great question, Mukul. So the the barriers, I think, are, uh, you know, quite a few. I I liken uh, the stage we're at now uh, in terms of innovative financing uh, to kind of the Gordon Gecko cell phone phase, you know, that that big kind of clunky (laughs) cell phone, you know, that was used uh, in, in that film Wall Street. And I think we're still at the beginning of this, and there are a lot of transaction costs in bringing the different players to the table. Recently, Merck for Mothers co-hosted a roundtable around on innovative financing at the DevEx World Conference, and a number of things came up in that conversation. The first was that we needed to bridge the linguistic divide, uh, you know, financiers are used to talking uh, in, in, you know, one, one, uh, you know, using one set of language, you know, with different, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, d- different tools, uh, you know, to, to describe, uh, you know, uh, what it is that they're looking for. The development space uh, uses another set of language and, and another set of tools, and so we we have to bridge that divide. Uh, The other thing we need to bridge is when we're talking about outcomes, we need to talk about both financial outcomes uh, around the instruments at play as well as the development outcomes and and be able Mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, elevate both uh, and have both parties understand uh, the uh, intersection uh, between uh, both types of outcomes. And then one of the other key things that... sorry. mm -hmm.
0: So, Marianne, just to just, to, and you know, you bring up an interesting point and, um And this is, I guess, one of the sort of tensions that, that we do see, which is, I and mean, we did uh, recently all this work in the US now in the women's health care, And it seems like, and all the work that we have, you know, we have been doing kind of, rest of the rest of the globe, there's a disproportionate focus um, on measuring the volume of care, meaning the output. Um instead of the value of the care, you know which is the outcome, right so it's not only just yeah. um saving the life of the woman, but it really is the quality of that life and making sure that there ripple effects on the family and and what yeah. that that means and the goodwill that it creates right mm-hmm. um, you know how do we how do we actually kind of address that and make sure that we are making that shift from output to outcome mm-hmm. um, because it seems like even in the in these sort of the, you know, these bonds and and that that are being created, there's an incredible emphasis on output, yeah. you know, rather than the patient-centric outcome. So, what's yeah. your thought on that? No, you're you're
4: you're exactly right. And one of the things I will say is that it takes investment uh, in uh, systems, uh, including critical data systems, in order to be able to accurately measure outcomes uh, and thus you know, be able to say something about the value uh, of an investment. And sometimes uh, investors balk, you know, at, at uh, investing in those data systems and surveillance systems uh, that, that would allow you uh, to assess uh, outcomes. Uh, because in many of these markets, in many of these countries, you're really having to build those systems from scratch. Uh, I think the other thing um, you know to share about uh, the um, the role of uh, measuring outcomes is that uh, the, the the interventions really do have to be at scale. Uh, if you're looking for population level outcomes, uh, especially around uh, issues like uh, maternal mortality, infant mortality, uh, you, you're really talking about large scale interventions. Um, And uh, in order to do that properly, you do have to bring in multiple, you know, different investors and partners uh, to the table. Uh, One project Merck for Mothers was involved in, again, another partnership with USAID, Saving Mothers Giving Life, uh, which showed population-level impact uh, outcomes uh, in Mm -hmm. Zambia uh, and um, Uganda where maternal mortality ratios uh, decreased uh, by up to 40%. But we, the partners, uh, made a significant investment in the monitoring and evaluation and surveillance systems. And not uh, all investors are, are willing you know, to uh, put up that capital uh, for health system strengthening uh, and the capacity building of uh, infrastructure
0: right right no no that definitely that definitely makes sense and i think perhaps also one of the uh, i would say the disconnects is that the financial market does look at things in a forward looking way mm-hmm. and traditional sort of the non-profit space looks at things in a more monetary evaluation which is looking at the past mm-hmm. so uh, we do see that you know uh, there's definitely uh, something to be said to be on the same page on how you're evaluating um The analysis on the financial side and also on the social side. So, I think think one of the things
4: I I think one of the things that could be exciting uh, for uh, 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 private uh, capital investors is uh, you know we're we're talking about this notion uh, of outcomes and values. I think we're also Mm -hmm. very short-sighted, even when we look to the future, uh, in that we only attempt uh, to to measure, let's say, health outcomes, when really we mm-hmm. could be measuring a whole range of ripple-on impacts uh, of that investment. Absolutely. You know, we could Absolutely. be measuring education. We could be measuring mm-hmm. economic empowerment and financial inclusion. You know, we could be measuring, you know, gender equality. I, I think that we, you know, we, we kind of stick in our little silos of, you know, I'm a health person, so I'm going to measure health outcomes. And I think if we're able to broaden, uh, and I, I recognize that this is difficult, but if we're able to broaden how we think about outcomes, then I think that, you know, it's a slam dunk, you know, that that these investments right. uh, make sense uh, from, from at right. multiple different levels. Right,
0: right. No, you're absolutely right. And we actually are... Um, you know, seeing that and doing some of that, um, so I think, and we definitely do see that result. Now, keeping in mind, you know, what you were saying in terms of again, looking into the future and where all this heading. I mean, uh, it's really fascinating the work that you have uh, started in Senegal, mm-hmm. in terms of that increased kind of contraceptive usage mm-hmm. and access to, you know, effective family planning, which is very, very important. Um, mm-hmm. You know, by 2020, do you want to tell us a little bit about that and? And also the work I guess you're doing in partnership with uh, um, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So I think it's you know it's an interesting one. If you, if you yeah, no, it's definitely another listeners.
4: interesting uh, facet to the work of uh, Merck for Mothers. Um, so as, as you may know, if the only thing we do or you know the, the global community does uh, is address the unmet need for modern contraception. Uh, we would Mm -hmm. be able to reduce the global maternal mortality burden uh, by up to 30%. Uh, And so in Senegal, uh, we worked in partnership with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, as well as the government of Senegal, uh, to modernize uh, their supply chain uh, by bringing in, you know, some of the best practices from the private sector, uh, including the introduction of Private third party logisticians uh, who are able to, uh, uh, who who were incentivized on performance uh, and given the tools uh, to track with real time data uh, their performance. uh, We found that we were able to reduce stockout rates uh, to less than 2% and uh, have uh, this. Uh, model beast, the government of Senegal had this model scaled up uh, to the rest of the country. Uh, right now, we are in a transition period, uh, moving from uh, you know donor partner funding uh, towards government of Senegal uh, financial and operational ownership. And one of the things that we are recognizing uh, is that uh, the transition period is you know is it, a fragile time. And so our, we've also brought in our partners, uh, the World Bank's Global, finance, uh, uh, global Financing Facility, the GFS, uh, to support uh, that transition uh, to sustainability, um, so that you know the government of Senegal uh, not only has the capacity uh, to operate, you know, to continue uh, operations uh, of, of the supply chain. But also has access uh, to the financing uh, that that it needs for that.
0: Which is again, I think it's it's a fantastic model because you know you go in and you do the work and you know, bring in the government so that there's a there's a continuity of this program yeah. and yeah. the government seems like you know and if you don't, I mean this this just you leave and and the project dies. So I yeah, no,
4: exactly, a, and and that that has been you know one of our guiding philosophies. You know, we make investments. Uh, that we believe, uh, will be game changers. Uh, you know, so a lot of them are around innovation, whether it's innovation around products, around processes and models of care, um, around partnerships or around uh, innovation around financing. Uh, but ultimately, uh, these innovations need to be scaled, uh, and need to be sustained. And really, uh, that is only, um, uh, you know, achievable Uh, with government partnership, as well as the partnership of, you know, large kind of institutional uh, organizations, um, you know, uh, uh, whether it it be the World Bank uh, Global Financing Facility uh, or or other um, large uh, regional organizations. If,
2: if, If I could ask a question about the future, as you think about the next few years, Uh, How do you, uh, where would you like Merck for Mothers to be and how would you define success?
4: (laughs) Thank you. Great question. So uh, since 2011 when we started, uh, Merck for Mothers has now been able to uh, improve access uh, to quality care and services for over 7 million women. Uh, around, uh, uh, around the globe. You know, I, I would love to see that number, uh, you know, double, uh, you know, uh, before, uh, before we're done. Uh, I would love to uh, make sure that the world actually achieves the sustainable development goal of reducing uh, the maternal mortality uh, rate to less than 75, 77 deaths uh, per 100,000 live births. Uh, but in terms of what would be uh, what, what what would uh, be success uh, for Merck for mothers, uh, it really is you know that uh, the women uh, in the geographies uh, that we are working for uh, not only have access to high quality of care, but they the, you know birth uh, you know is, is no longer a uh, risky endeavor. Uh, it's it's not something to be feared. Uh, and, and they are able to uh, make informed decisions uh, around uh, what type of care they receive, uh, where they receive it, uh, as well as act uh, uh, on uh, the choices uh, that they have. And I think, in terms of our investments, uh, a critical, uh, f- another critical factor of their success uh, is, uh, you know, how sustainable uh, they are, and uh, whether, during, as you mentioned, uh, they continue. Uh, post the Merck for Mothers uh, direct funding, uh, because, uh, we have, uh, laid those foundations, uh, where there is continued demand for quality, uh, that drives investments in quality, whether it's investments by, uh, the local providers themselves, uh, or government, uh, and, uh, uh insurers or, or, uh, other payers are actually paying for quality. Uh, and in that way, we believe you know that there is the market incentive uh, to continue to invest in quality
0: uh, and uh, have
4: that save lives.
0: So Marianne, just to wrap up, uh, let's bring the conversation closer to home. Um, so you know where are things right now in the u s and uh, how can we you know make the the numbers be even better in the u.s from where to, what is it today?
4: It's um, it's actually tragic um, that the U.S. uh, in the U.S. we see that the maternal deaths are increasing and not decreasing, um, and that you know a a mother giving birth now uh, has a higher likelihood of dying uh, than her mother did giving birth to her about 25 30 years ago, Um, as you know. Uh, yes that, you know that that's the case here, and um as you may also know, black women uh, are three mm-hmm. to four times more likely uh to die in childbirth um, than white women uh, in the u s uh, in some cities like new york city uh it's uh, black women are actually twelve times more likely uh to die during childbirth uh, than white women and this is after you know you've um accounted for uh differences in Uh, um, in income, in education, uh, and in uh, uh, other uh, chronic uh, comorbidities. Uh, And so there's a lot of work to do uh, in the U.S. And, uh, again, a lot of it is around uh, improving uh, access uh, to quality health care. It's around making sure that uh, women have access to integrated care models uh, that Uh, take care of not just them during their pregnancy, but, you know, any uh, pre-existing chronic conditions uh, that may uh, increase uh, their risk uh, during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's a lot of work to be done in the U.S. And in fact, the U.S. is one of Merck for Mothers' uh, focus countries. And so we are working uh, with partners in over 14 states. Uh, you know to mm-hmm. do some of this work uh, around uh, improving quality of care
0: yeah and 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 i think you know it is it is really incredibly important work and just the statistics that you have shared and also the fact that these numbers are i mean they, sh- they absolutely can be changed and it really is this whole notion of having a patient centric approach and uh you know, making women front and center, and just you know, remembering them. So I think it is, it is, you know, it is really incredible. It really, hats off to you—the the fantastic work that you are doing, and uh, and keeping us all you know informed, and and making us all a part of it. Because this, this approach that you have with partners really makes makes a big difference. Um, Mukul, do you have anything else for Marianne?
2: Uh, no, this has been a very very eye opening uh, uh, discussion. So I am very very thankful to both of you for. Uh, you know, educating me as well as all our listeners to to the seriousness of this issue. Thank you.
4: Well, I'm I'm Great. very thank honored. you very much, uh, No, I, I'm very honored to have uh, been included uh, uh, in the series and and for the work of Merck for Mothers. Uh, you know, whatever insights uh, or lessons learned, you know, we can bring uh, to your audience uh, from our work. Uh, happy to do so, and so I really do thank you. For the invitation uh, to have this discussion this morning.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.